0: Well, good evening. Uh, it is good to see you tonight. And uh, I hope that you have had a good day. Have you had a good day today? And uh, I trust uh, that maybe you've even had a good meal before you came, or maybe you're looking forward to a good meal afterwards. Um, maybe not. <laughs> uh, did you have a good week? Good week of time Whatever, you know, with work or school. You know, spring break was just a week before that. I don't know if anybody was out of town. Have you ever had, maybe you had a good vacation, a good time off? uh, A little bit of break from things? You know, there's a lot of things that we think about in our lives that are good, right? And people will ask. We, We think about life a lot of times in terms of good and bad, or maybe just good and hard, right? How are you doing? I'm good, right? Or maybe when somebody leaves the room, you say, good riddance. (laughs) Uh, It's all perspective, right? Um, You know, maybe you had a good game, or you had a good meeting, or maybe you had a good class, Uh, whatever that looks like, right, that we think about things in terms of good, and maybe things that are not so good, maybe things that are even bad. Last week, we had an opportunity as a Riverside community uh, to come together on Sunday night and to watch The Passion of the Christ. And if you've ever seen that film before, it's a very sort of graphic depiction of the suffering and death of Christ. And it's hard. It's hard to walk away from seeing something like that. It's hard to read some of the things that we read in scripture about the suffering and death of Christ and to think Well, that was good, right? And yet, we call tonight, we call today, Good Friday. And it's more, right, than just how we often use good. It's more than just a good day or a good meal or a good trip or, you know, a good opportunity or a good job. But it is a good that has deep and rich significance. Uh, For many people, Good Friday is referred to also as Holy Friday, but it is a day that the church has set aside to commemorate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, three days before the Sunday celebration of his resurrect- resurrection. In many parts of the world, congregations uh, will hold a worship service um, called a tenembra. It's a word that is Latin meaning darkening. The message and the music of the service rehearses the events leading up to the death of Christ. And so you oftentimes in these services will have a gradual uh, extinguishing of lights or candles um, that leads to a very sacred moment of silent darkness. The intent of the service is obviously uh, to better comprehend and to appreciate the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And so while it might seem a little bit off or weird to refer to a day that we acknowledge the suffering and death of Christ as Good Friday, uh, it's a day that our minds and our hearts can be transformed by a renewed understanding of its meaning. It's good because of what Jesus did. It's good because of what it accomplished. And so in a single verse, in 1 Peter, we find a significant summary of the transforming value of the death of Christ. And so if you want, you can just listen or you can follow along. But I want to direct our attention tonight to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And each phrase of this verse is pregnant with important theological and practical implications worthy of our meditation and worthy of our promoting thanksgiving it's a reason to find joy in the midst of death and suffering and so i want to read for you first peter chapter 3 verse 18 and i want to share with you five significant truths out of this verse that lead us to a proper understanding of why we call it good friday and like Every good pastor, I made it all start in S's so that it will be easier to remember. Um, but First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, reading from the ESV translation, says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Amen. You know, Peter packs a lot of truth into this verse. And there's a lot of richness that is here, uh, but there's also a lot of reflection in terms of the suffering and death of Christ. Firstly, we see that the death of Christ is sufficient. Christ, Peter says, suffered once. The death of Jesus was unique It was unlike any death in human history before and after. In contrast to the multiple daily and weekly and annual Jewish offerings by the priests that would occur at the tabernacle or in the temple, the fact that Jesus only needed to suffer once proves that his death was sufficient. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 25 through 26 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Peter recognizes that there is significance to the fact that this sacrifice was once in the sense that it was sufficient. He he uses the word suffer here to place in place of death because throughout the epistle he wants to connect with his readers who are encountering suffering. They're encountering emotional and verbal and even physical persecution for their faith. And Jesus understood what it meant to suffer and to die, and that in his death, it made him not only sufficient, but the only sufficient object of faith. And so Peter tells us that Christ suffered once. Aren't you thankful that we don't have to continue to sacrifice, that Christ doesn't continue to suffer and die, but that it was sufficient for all time, for all people For all sin. Secondly, Peter acknowledges that the death of Christ was satisfactory. Uh, Peter says it was for sins, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins. The death of Christ was atoning. It means that his death was satisfactory to pay the just penalty of the sins of the world. 1 John 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation of our sins the full payment, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. His payment, his death, his sacrifice was sufficient, and it was sufficient in a way that it was for all sin. It satisfactorily met the, the demand of sin for everyone. In the death of Christ, sin's punishment is met. Guilt is removed Freedom is gained for the one who trusts in God's provision through, through Christ. The problem that separates sinful humanity from a holy God is sin. That's the issue. That is the divide. And the only solution that can satisfy God was to have all of our iniquity fall upon him, Jesus we see that in Isaiah 53, 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We all have sinned. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. You know, there's an interesting element to Scripture that it is Christocentric. That means that all of Scripture points to Christ. There's a lot of good things for life and for, uh, you know, this world and relationships. But everything has a purpose in that it points to Jesus Christ. And specifically, we can see this in different elements of Scripture as well. And I sort of came across this, and I don't want to put a whole lot of, you know, I try not to put a whole lot of meaning Uh, on these types of things, but I I found it to be interesting. The Torah is the foundation elements of the Old Testament and, and really of Scripture. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is really the basis of all things. It tells us who God is. It tells us who created us and gave us value. It it allows us to understand the nature of sin that entered into the world and by one man through, through one man into all of mankind and the need, the separation that exists between humanity and God because of sin. And then it establishes a plan, a plan of redemption of a hope that would come and be found and accomplished in a promised Messiah. And so even in the early books of the Bible, it was pointing to Christ. And what's kind of interesting about this is that if you look at the original language, right, and the books of Torah were written in Hebrew, and there's an interesting pattern there. And again, be careful not to read too much into these things. It's just interesting. The first word in in Genesis is Bereshit. And the last letter of Bereshit is the letter Tov in Hebrew. It's what we would sort of identify as our letter T. And Tov is the first letter of Torah in the Old Testament. And and if you count, right, every 50 letters in the book of Genesis, you get the spelling of the word Torah. Every 50 letters, it spells it out. If you look at it in the Hebrew language. If you go to the book of Exodus and you look at every 50th letter and it spells out the word Torah. And you see that all throughout the book of Exodus in the Hebrew language. And then you skip Leviticus and you go to Numbers and you read in every 49th letter, one less, it spells the word Torah backwards. And then if you go to the book of Deuteronomy and it does the same thing. The 49th letter in the Hebrew language It spells the word Torah backwards. And so you might think, well, that's just random, and it might be. But why? Why would that be? Well, it might be because in all of Torah, it is pointing to the book of Leviticus. That the two books before and after are pointing back to the significance of Leviticus. And so in Leviticus, if you read every seven letters, you get the word Yahweh, which is Y-W-V-H in Hebrew, And so what is the point of this? That it is pointing to Yahweh, even in the elements of the Torah, that from the very beginning, it's pointing to the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would atone for our sins. Everything comes back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so you can... You know, read too much into those sort of grammatical elements, but the reality of all of Scripture is that it is pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And so, this really leads us to the third component that Peter gives us: the death of Christ was substitutionary. Peter says it was the righteous for the unrighteous. See the death of. Jesus was vicarious. A a vicar is an agent who takes the place of another. The death of Jesus was a substitutionary death. He is the righteous one. And he is the only one who could die in the place of the unrighteous. Uh, This preposition for, when it's used with the word sacrifice, it means on behalf of or in place of. The reason Jesus could be an acceptable sacrifice is because of the perfection of his sinlessness. See, Jesus' death was satisfactory, but it was also substitutionary. It was for us. This is why all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then in chapter 2, verse 22, Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was the perfect substitute. He knew no sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is the righteous dying for the unrighteous, so that we might be found righteous before God. I don't know if you've ever read the book uh, The Reason for God by Tim Keller but he talks about this a little bit and he says in the real world relationships it's impossible to love people with a problem or a need without some sense of sharing or even changing places with them. It's our idea of empathy. All real life changing love involves some form of this kind of exchange. And so he talks about it in light of parenting, and this is what he says. He says, children come into the world with a condition of complete dependence. They cannot operate as self-sufficient, independent agents unless their parents give up much of their own independence and freedom, what parents? For years, (laughs) right? For years you give this up. If you don't allow your children to do that, if you don't give it up, then you hinder if, if you don't, or if you don't willingly allow your freedom to be given up, then you hinder their freedom. And if you only get to your children when it doesn't inconvenience you, then your children will grow up physically only, but in all sorts of other ways, they will remain emotionally needy and troubled and over dependent. And so this is again what he says. Keller says the choice is clear. You can either sacrifice your freedom for theirs. It's them or you. To love your child well, you must decrease that they must increase. You must be willing to enter into the dependency that they have so eventually they can experience the freedom and independence that you have. I think most of us as parents would probably agree with that. And later, a little bit later, Keller closes with this. He says, all life-changing love toward people with serious needs is a substitutional sacrifice. If you become personally involved with them in some way, their weakness will flow toward you as your strength flows toward them. Well, think about that in terms of our God. How can God be a God of love if he does not become personally involved in suffering the same violence and oppression and grief and weakness and pain that we experience The answer to that question really is twofold. One is that God can't, and secondly, that only one major religion even claims that God does. Christianity is the only religion whose God became a man who suffered as well as we suffered, who died in our place for our sins. And he did all of this for you and I so that we could be free to live a supernatural god blessed life. Christ's unjust suffering made it possible for us to forgive as he forgave, to love even our enemies with an unconditional love just as he loved us. And so we look to Christ for strength to take advantage of the unjust suffering in our own lives because he is the one who suffered unjustly first and brought us to God. And that's where Peter goes with this. The fourth one here is that the death of Christ was salvation. Peter says that he might bring us to God. The death of Christ is life-giving. That is to say that it accomplished what God intended in terms of providing salvation. The phrase to bring us to God implies that sin separates a person from God. That what Christ accomplished through his death provided a new and living way of access for the believer into the very presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Paul actually describes this as well. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, he used these sort of descriptors where he says it was bold and confident in terms of the access that was given to us through the death of Christ. And so the death that Jesus died, it made it possible for a reconciled relationship to be, happen between a holy God and a guilty sinner. And so what does that leave us with? Well, fifthly and lastly, the death of Christ was significant. Peter says being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. The death of Jesus was victorious. The death and resurrection of Jesus is extremely significant. The resurrection of Jesus Christ three days after his death was God's triumphal victory. It was his vindication his powerful validation that Jesus was the son of God who conquered both sin and death forever. Romans chapter 4 or chapter 1 verse 4 says and and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our lord And so such a victory is what provides a living hope for all who have been born again. Without the victorious resurrection, there is no solid foundation to our faith. There is no basis for our hope and there is absolutely no message to proclaim. But God died and he gave us hope, right? Because his death was sufficient. His death was all that we need, and it accomplished all that we needed in our souls. And so on this Good Friday, when we reflect and we think about the goodness of God, we can truly say that it's a good day. And maybe it can be even a little bit better as we appreciate the wonderful provision that God has made through his death through the sacrifice of his son. And so tonight, we gather together to remember these things. And we want to reflect on the suffering and the death of Christ. But these things were not done in vain. And we understand from scripture that this came out of the goodness of God. And this is the the good news of the gospel that he died for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to him. And so tonight we want to participate together in communion, in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper has deep and significant meaning for all those who have trusted Christ as their personal savior. It's something that we do that is specifically for believers. And so we want to do this together. If you've trusted Christ as your personal savior, then we would invite you to participate along with us here. And, you know, age doesn't matter. Parents, you can kind of determine and decide if you feel like your kids are uh, understanding and ready to participate in the Lord's Supper together. But we want to take some opportunity to reflect because that's really what Good Friday is about. It's about reflecting on the goodness of Jesus Christ and the good things that were accomplished through his suffering and death on the cross that would make way the possibility and the event of the resurrection. And so as we think about communion, let me just sort of share with you a story. Uh, Charles Swindoll told a story of a widow named Mrs. Roberts. Her husband had recently died from a sudden heart attack. Alone, afraid, and facing an unknown future, her grief knew no bounds. In the weeks that followed the funeral, his mother watched Mrs. Roberts leave the house every day to visit the grave of her husband. Every day, she left her lonely home for the cemetery. Her despair deepened. You see, their neighbor was a fine, morally upright woman, but she had no personal relationship with Jesus. Over the years, his mother had attempted to reach her with the gospel, but Mrs. Roberts was never particularly receptive. And because she had no hope in Christ, she had no hope in his resurrection, no hope of any happiness in life, and certainly no hope of any eternal, peaceful home in heaven. And Swindoll says this, he says, I'll never forget that the day that my mother said to me, Charles, I want you to pray that Mrs. Roberts' heart will be open to what I have to say. And within a few minutes, she made her way across the street with a batch of warm cookies and a pitcher of lemonade. And that afternoon, Mrs. Roberts listened to the good news of Christ and embraced the truth. Because Jesus rose from the dead, death has no claim in any final victory but Christ and all those who believe in him will live forever with him that is the purpose of our time right it's the purpose of gospel it's what everything points to and maybe you've never come to that conclusion yourself see the gospel is not about what we do or don't do It's about what Christ has done on the cross. It's about the work that has already been accomplished. It's about his death and resurrection for all mankind as a satisfactory atonement for our sin. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that is passed down from generation to generation. It's not something that comes from simply participating in church activities. It's something that comes from a personal place of faith and trust and belief in our own hearts. It's an acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is who the Bible clearly teaches that he is, that he was the perfect son of God and that he was sent from God to this earth to become man and to suffer and to die on the cross as the payment and to qualify as the penalty of our sin. And that by faith, we can receive him into our lives. And when we do that, we receive his gift of life. We receive his gift of forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, we receive his gift of eternal hope with him forever. And it's a simple but good gospel message. And it is the point and purpose of Good Friday. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says in verse 26, it says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then later in that same chapter, verse 55, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus need to be crucified? Why did he need to be resurrected? The death and resurrection of Christ is actually the death of death. The resurrection is the destruction of all that destroys. It is the end of the endings. It is the ruin of all that ruins. And it is the annihilation of all that kills and robs and infects and corrupts and distorts. The resurrection is the final end of all that produces final endings. Death is over. We all know that we live in a world that's not right. It's not the way that things should be. Children are not supposed to die. Doctors and nurses should not have to watch people die from cancer and disease. We all know that life and health and beauty and peace and love are better. They're better things. They're good things compared to corruption and sickness and death that we see all around us all too clearly. The resurrection is God's signal that our intuition about the world is right. The resurrection is the defeat of all of these defeaters. It is the death of death. And so in the New Testament, when Jesus comes and he's talking to the disciples, he proclaims the fulfillment of this in himself. The establishment of the new covenant that is found in himself. It is a a covenant that is founded on the person of Jesus Christ. And specifically, it is on the basis of his death and resurrection. It is what this season is all about. It is God's solution to the problem of evil and suffering. Death is defeated and evil is overturned. And so we go back to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh and being made alive in the spirit. See, this is God's message for you and I. Do you believe that Christ suffered once, that he suffered and died for your sins? Do you believe that without Christ, you are sinful, that you are unrighteous, but God's righteousness is given to us through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, that he might reconcile us, that he might rejoin us with what was the purpose from the beginning, for us to be in perfect harmony and relationship with God. And so he was put to death, but made alive in spirit, that he lives so that we might also live. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. As we think about communion, I'm going to invite um, our servers to come, and they're going to begin to pass things out. And I just want to encourage us to use this time uh, as a time of reflection. And if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, today is your day. Maybe you've thought that, you know, you just had to be good enough or You know, you thought that at the end, things would just kind of work themselves out. Or maybe you've really never given it a whole lot of thought. But today is a day that you can come to Christ and you can acknowledge that it's on the basis of his suffering and death. And that you can put your trust in him. You can believe in who he is and what he did and what he accomplished for your life.